Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We are so happy to welcome May Cobb, who has a very exciting, very summer-ready book for all of us. <laughs> May, tell us about you. Tell us about your writing and how you found this book idea and found your agent and how everything happened. I have been a writer for probably 26 years, but I got published in 2018. In 2019, I got a two book deal for The Hunting Wives, my thriller before this, and for My Summer Darlings. And when my agent was shopping The Hunting Wives, I knew that sometimes people could get two book deals. So I thought, what could be the next one I'd want to write? And my friend Riley Sager, the thriller writer, he told me that he really always has like a film in his mind for inspiration. And I just, for some reason, the movie, The Witches of Eastwick came to mind. Y'all might be too young to remember that movie, but I just, I love the whole setup of three lifelong best friends and a mysterious stranger moving to town and upending their lives. And I really love to write about messy adults behaving badly and all that. So it seems like the direction I wanted to go. So I hammered out like a one page synopsis and thank goodness the publisher was interested. So as soon as I finished The Hunting Wives, I started writing My Summer Darlings. And I actually got my agent, Victoria Sanders. She's actually my third agent. So my first book that I've been working on and off for 25 years is actually nonfiction. And it's about a jazz musician who I just became so obsessed with his music, but he died on my fourth birthday. So I never got to meet him, but I feel like we have this connection and I've stayed in his house and his widow's totally taken me in. And I had a nonfiction agent for that. And we got an offer from a university press, but they wanted to change the book fundamentally to make it like a straight biography. And that's not the story I'm telling. So I declined and then parted ways. And then I went and took a break from that and wrote my debut a novel titled Big Woods, which is a thriller. And I got an agent for that. And that was just through straight up query process. And I always stalk manuscript wish list because it's just one of the best tools out there. But for me, in terms of searching and seeking agents, like I love the search function of that website and it seems so current what they're actually looking for. And so that was so helpful. So I got an agent for that and that came out from an indie press that's now bankrupt. So the book is not available anymore except on Audible. That's a whole other story. Then I parted ways with that agent and I wrote The Hunting Wives. I wrote half of it and was like, I need to get this out there anyway. I feel like I've just done a big monologue. No, no, not no. at all. That's great. <laughs> we want these answers. We want to know how it went for you. So many writers are so terrified of the entire process. And so every time we get a chance to talk to an author, especially an author who just said, you've had three agents, that lets them know, hey, look, it's okay if you have multiple agents. It's okay. Like you can still succeed. So hearing everything that's happened to you up until now is super helpful for writers. So please continue. 
Okay, great. I will then. The whole querying process can seem so daunting, but I just want to let listeners know that I got each of my agents through querying, through just the slush pile. And while I went to conferences, I always went to, and I still go to the Writers League of Texas Agents Conference. It's an annual thing here in Austin every year. But the three agents I got from just reaching out to them and I really geek out on the query letter. I don't know why I like it. And I think if you're just straight out of the gate, give them your pitch and throw in some comps and tell them why you're coming to them. If it's a really good fit, like you're going to get responses. The big pro tip an agent actually gave me was as soon as you get a request for a full, go back and email everyone that you've reached out to, even if you haven't heard from them. And even if they think it's obnoxious and put like update in the subject line and just say, I know I just sent you this two days ago, but I just wanted to let you know, I'm already getting requests for the full. And that to me has always spurned more interest in getting more agents reading it, which is so important because I know agents pick what they're interested in, but it doesn't help for them to also know there's interest around it and they might miss out on something. So any edge you can give yourself is like my biggest advice. And after my debut, it wasn't the best match with the agent I was currently with. And it was a scary thing to want to leave because it was a pretty big agency, but I knew in my heart it wasn't working out. So I parted ways and then actually do some real talk here. I was at a real crossroads. My son has special needs and my husband was a waiter at the time and we were getting periodic eviction notices. And I was at a real crossroads after staying home with them. Like I need to go find full-time work and I probably don't need to be a writer anymore because this is not sustainable for our lives. We're not making it so cut to, I wrote the partial of the hunting wives, like in four months, just in a fever. And at the same time, I started looking for full-time work and it's like, okay, I haven't really worked in a couple of years and I'm 48 and I just don't know why I didn't hear back from anybody. And I was starting to panic. And then I decided to query people on Thanksgiving week. And I don't know why it's like everyone shut down but something in me was like, do it. So I had a list of a dozen agents that I wanted to target. And I think I wound up getting five or six offers of representation, which was wild to me. Wow. On that is amazing. It was crazy. And it was like, oh, wow. How do I make this decision? Yeah. So that's that story. That's amazing. So you had five or six offers. Did everyone have a really different vision or was it pretty much I seeing your book the same way and seeing the submission process the same way? There were some different visions and that's really what helped me make the decision. One agent who I really respect and I got along with her very well and we talked for an hour. She really wanted to take a wrecking ball to the whole thing and that kind of felt wrong to me. So I knew that I wasn't going to sign with her. Another agent wanted to make it more like Girl on a Train where there's like a body at page 50 and then it's the, you know, investigation. And I knew I didn't want to do that either. The other criteria for me was I really wanted it to be sold on a partial because money was such a big factor at that point in my life that it was critical that it gets sold. So the agent Victoria that I signed with was adamant that she would do that. Now we did edit that partial for four months. It's not like she took it out overnight. And I worked with a freelance editor that I still worked with that she introduced me to, and she really helped get it in tip-top shape. 
She took it out in March and she sent it to a film agent on Thursday night. And the film agent, thank goodness, loved it and said she would rep it. And then she sent it out wide on Friday. And then that weekend, I just relaxed. No, I'm just kidding. I was a total wreck of baby <laughs> here because she told me I'm giving them till Monday. And I was like, what? Because my last submission, it was like a four month thing. And I think we finally got an offer in the fifth month and 32 people turned it down in the 33rd. And the last person said yes. So I don't even know what I did that weekend. I'm sure I was so obnoxious to be around. And then we got an offer on Monday and she said, I like it, but I think we're going to turn it down and go to auction. And I was like, really? She held an auction on Friday, which is my mother's birthday, which is so special to me. So I really remember the date for that reason. So it was mind blowing to have that happen and to be really rescued from the hardship by her so quickly. Wow. I'm really just wow. laying it all out there. No, it's not bad. I appreciate Keep it. Going. So many writers are in the same position. A lot of writers give up because they feel like, oh, my writing is not like it's making money right now. So I'm going to go ahead and stop and get this full-time job because realities are, it's not a lot of money in publishing and bills don't care about your dreams. They care about getting paid. So hearing your story and you being so open and honest with us will definitely help a lot of writers out there who are probably in the same position. Yeah. Thank you. And I just, I really feel like perseverance is the name of the game. If someone had told me in 1996, when I started, it would take this long. I don't know that I would have stuck it out, but I don't want to do anything else. And I really believe for the nonfiction book, especially, I really believed in his story so much that it carried me through. And I worked so many different jobs to support myself, but still on the weekends would sit down and make that time to write or 15 minutes in the morning. And that's the other thing, like when I wrote my first novel, I wrote it in a year, which sounds fast, but I really wrote it in stolen moments of time. My son was three, so he was with me a lot, but 20 minutes here and there each day. After a year, I had a novel. I couldn't believe it. And so I think that's another myth. Like people think you need to go on a retreat, which I'm all about. I just can't with my lifestyle. But sometimes unlimited time is the devil. And if you can just 15, 20, 30 minutes, and gosh, I wish I could just stay off social media because I think I'd be so much more prolific. <laughs> I think I, we all would be more yeah. prolific if things like TikTok and Instagram did not exist and we're not constantly scrolling. Yes, it's such a waste of time. <laughs> and I love like meeting other writers through it. So I'm trying to not beat myself up, but you really can get so much done and squeezed out of such a small amount of time that you can look up and have a book in a year and then you have something to sell. So you just have to stick with it. And if it's what you want to do, you have to drown out all the voices in society that say it's an impossible dream because it's not. It is possible. And who knows if any of us are going to get rich from it, but I do think you can have a career and you can make a living if you keep pushing. I really believe that. Thank you so much for talking with us about all of that, because as Valentina said, there are so many writers out there, I'm sure listening to us right now, who are in a very similar situation and wondering, is this going to happen for me? 
And I'm so happy it's going so well for you. I love that we get to see the happy ending and then we hear all of that because then we know you're going to be okay. So thank you for being open about that. So one thing I love about this is you've written this perfect, in many ways, very escapist, very modern summer novel, but you also have a master's degree in Victorian literature. How do the two things come together and how does Victorian literature and your academic background lead to the story that you've written? Thank you for those compliments. I really appreciate it. When I was studying Victorian literature, I really gravitated towards that era's early detective novels, and they were called sensation novels. And my favorite one is The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins, and it's a total page turner. And those were very propulsive to read. And really, it was my escape from reading longer things like Charles Dickens and or Joseph Conrad, or I was just, oh my God, I'm, I'm asleep over here. So when I discovered that there were actual page turners that I could read and then get away with calling them like Victorian literature studies, I was in heaven. I realized early on that like page turners are good, like they're easy for people to read. And in the Victorian era, like, you know, Charles Dickens, they used to serialize his big chunky novels and they would put it in a magazine. I don't know if it was weekly or monthly and you'd read an edition or a chapter. And I, I just think that's so cool. And I learned that I like to read books that are page turners and I don't have an appetite for much else. <laughs> and so I guess that's the correlation, which isn't that academic or studious. But I think that kind of makes sense. And I have a theory of what keeps us turning the pages. Do you have a theory of what keeps us turning the pages? Did it just automatically happen or you're like, I have a plan? I want to hear your theory. My theory is the changing of perspectives because we go back from past to present and we have all of these characters who are telling each other all of these different things. So we have more or less a complete picture, but they are still very much in their perspectives, which are very different. And we don't know if they're going to, in a sense, communicate those perspectives fast enough that they're going to be okay. So for me, that's where a lot of the tension came from, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. I love that take so much. I think you're right. I consciously didn't think about this ahead of time, but in my previous novel, it was just one perspective. And after about page 300, I'm like, I am so sick of her <laughs> that I knew I wanted to change it up for this next one. <laughs> and I do think it makes it easier to make it more cliffhangery because you have those reveals at the end of each chapter and each person and the secrets and the lies and stuff. And then one thing I tried to do, which you mentioned is the present day and then the past. So we know that there's a woman dying in the forest, but we don't know which one of the women it is. And so I tried to keep that suspense going where it could be any of the women. I think that helped. And my editor weighed in a lot and she actually had me add more of those women dying in the forest chapters because she was like, this is very soapy and almost women's fiction. And so we do want to keep it in the thriller genre. And so that really helped me keep it more propulsive. Thank God for good editors. This reminds me of something I was noticing that a lot of the beginning and I'll pull it up, but I was hoping you might be willing to read the first page. A lot of it could be either a beautiful women's fiction novel or a thriller, depending on how we read the very same 
words, which I found so incredibly interesting. Maybe that's just me reading into it, but I was looking at it and I realized from the beginning, we'd be somewhere between those two genres, which I thought was a really fun way to start it out. Is that something you did on purpose or is that just me reading into it too much? No, I don't know that I did it on purpose, but my previous novel, The Hunting Wives, was very much like a hybrid women's fiction thriller. And I think it's just what I write naturally. So for whatever reason, I like the hybrid form where it could be either. Okay. So what's so interesting to me is we begin with present, which is like a prologue, where it's very clearly a thriller. And then we go into chapter one, six weeks earlier, Jen, because we've been primed that something scary might happen. And then we get to a moment where either this guy is incredibly sexy or he's terrifying and it's one or the other. And we're not sure yet, which later makes more sense, but it's such an interesting thing to do on the first page. Would you be willing to read the chapter one part to at least his short sandy hair, but maybe longer if you wanted to, just so we can see that there are these moments that could be one or the other. Yeah. Sure, I'll totally do that. All right, here we go. Chapter one, six weeks earlier. And this is from Jen's perspective. I heard him before I saw him. He arrived in the middle of a hot, balmy morning a week ago today. The low rumble of his 1967 Chevy pickup snaking around the block as I was bent over, twisting the rusty nozzle on the garden hose. Tepid water sputtered out of the warm rubber and oozed around my flip-flop clad feet as he slowed his truck and rounded the bend in front of my house. Did he wink at me? I'm still not sure, but a small grin crept across his face and he gave me the quickest of nods. Even in this brief exchange, I could feel the fever of attraction. My neck flushed and my hand shot up of its own accord, waving maniacally at him. I could tell he was dead handsome through the windshield, the glaring morning sunlight catching blonde streaks in his short sandy hair. His toned lean arms slung across the blue steering wheel. His honey-kissed skin and that perfect mouth I could already imagine pressing my lips to. I love that. Okay, so as you were reading, I was highlighting the things that tipped me off. This could be scary. So we've got, I've heard him before I saw him, which could be like, yikes. The Chevy pickup is snaking around the block, which is scary. Winking could be frightening too, if he was looking at a victim and he's dead handsome, not just handsome. So you've got all these little scary things in there too. Am I insane? Did anyone else notice that? Not insane. That's not insane at all. I think that's just part of good writing. It's all about the word choices and how you use it. Thank you for picking up on that. It wasn't intentional, but now that you've pointed it out, I'm like, yeah, that is in there. (laughs) I love that that can happen though. You go back to writing and you realize all of these ideas are on the first page and it hints at so much of what's to come. I think that's really cool. Thank you. So much writing. I think for all of us, it's just all from the subconscious and it's all there if we just trust it. So May, you have a lot of characters with a lot of conflicting motives and who have totally different versions of the truth to different people. How do you keep all of that organized? Yes, it did get messy sometimes. I'm pretty old school. So everything for me pretty much is on paper. So I would have three sheets clipped together of say Kitty's character and I would make certain notes on her And then the same for the others and just keep them in a little file folder. But they were pretty distinct to me. Once I started writing them and I could hear their voices in my head, it was easier to keep their own messes in their own areas. (laughs) Yeah, I was hoping that there was a grand chart somewhere of who knows what, when. No, I need to learn how to plot better. I have so much fun if I don't know what's going to happen. 
And not only fun, I don't think I can plot too much out. I plot a little bit, but then it really does just have to come out on the page. Plotting isn't for everybody, not extreme plotting. I tell writers all the time, you don't have to be like an amazing outliner that goes through super in-depth layers. You can just have guideposts. Like I'm horrible at directions, but I can tell you go right at the McDonald's. You know what I mean? So if you know where your guideposts are, you get to have fun in the middle trying to find ways to make them connect. Yes, exactly. And I usually do have guideposts, like maybe something will come to me and I know it's plot point two or it's going to happen much later, but it makes me know that I'm writing towards that. I like that. That makes sense. In one of your interviews, you mentioned that you've been writing since at least fourth grade. Please tell me you were scaring the adults in your life with scary stories back then too. I wish I could say I was. I was writing a lot of bad poetry and stuff like that. So. <laughs> It was scary from that perspective. <laughs> I, I think everyone goes through that phase, though. I certainly did. Everybody wrote bad me. poetry when they were young. Everybody. I feel like that's mostly how it all starts. You start writing weird, bad poetry, talking about your parents don't understand you, your siblings are getting on your nerves, your teachers are stupid. You just start writing poetry about the, the dumbest, weirdest things, and it all is horrible and looks like chicken scratch. But then you grow up. And you get to be where you are now. And so it's, it's all good. It was all practice to reach this point. But maybe we need That's those true. moments. Maybe <laughs> we need those early feelings of, oh, I'm so deep to propel us <laughs> forward. And then later we realize none of it was good. But maybe we needed that feeling at the time. I love it. <laughs> what tips do you have for writing characters who are complicated but still mostly well-intentioned? That's a great question. I think the key is not likability. Just throw that out the window because women have so much pressure to be likable in life and fiction. I think the key is, though, to maybe have somewhere in this complicated character, there's got to be something relatable. So even though they might be making terrible decisions that people are gasping at, maybe the bored housewife, there's something in there that a bored reader can relate to. Or even if they're not a housewife, just a feeling of restlessness or being the best years of your life have flown past you or raising like an insolent teenager. So I think if there's something that even if readers don't want to recognize it in themselves, but they secretly do, I think that's the key. Making characters as real as possible. And sometimes I think I make mine too real. <laughs> and then people say they're way too unlikable. Maybe they are. But to me, I'm just channeling how I think they actually would behave not how we'd want them to, but how they actually would, given the wrong set of circumstances. I hope as an industry, we can move beyond female characters have to be likable to characters in general need to be, to some degree, relatable. That's my hope for the future. But I know that a lot of people still get pushback if their female characters aren't quote unquote likable. And I wonder if it's that we're afraid that if we show quote unquote, unlikable women on the page will give real women ideas. I think that's a big part of it. And that's the dangerous part of it. Because in my previous thriller, The Hunting Wives, the criticism didn't really come from maybe the woman that was the murderer. It came from the main character who was stepping out on her husband because her husband was perfect. And a lot of people didn't like that. And that's fine. But she was working through some very complicated things that actually had nothing to do with him. 
And early on in the edits, there was some conversation about, hey, should he have some bad qualities? There has to be a reason she's cheating on him. And I'm like, no, he doesn't have to be bad for her to be bad. And it really gets my back up when I think that this conversation never happens with male characters, that it's just always understood or implied that boys will be boys. And of course, the main character is sleeping with the secretary because she's so pretty and he couldn't help himself. But if it's a woman, she better not step outside of that matronly spousal role because it's dangerous, like more dangerous than being the actual murderer in the book. Like no one ever criticized that person. And I'm like, wow, okay. (laughs) So it's funny. And I think And a lot of criticism comes from female readers. So a lot of it's so internalized. (laughs) Definitely. I would like to criticize your villain, not because he's badly written, he's wonderfully written, but the fact that he uses the same lines on so many different people is such an interesting plot point because at one point it's a clue, which is great. But before that, it's just so insulting that he knows exactly what emotional button to push. And for some And it's interesting because we can watch that one maneuver resonate differently with different women, but we see why it works. Honestly, he's just such a master manipulator and I guess psychopath really. And I've definitely come across those types of people in my life a few times. I've had brushes with them. And so I really wanted to explore that because it's amazing how good they are at what they do and how it's not really like the women's weakness, but it really speaks to how well he pulls it all off. And then he's so attractive and all the other things that, you know, maybe if someone does feel like even a little signal of alarm, they ignore it. That's just an old story, right? Like the charm oozing out of the psychopath, (laughs) blinding the person. (laughs) But it's true. But it's true. It happens every single day. Women will ignore red flags that are literally dangling in front of their face because somebody's charming or they're very handsome, especially if they've grown up in this society with all the body image issues and thinking they have to look a certain way and present a certain way. So because of all these issues and how society views women or wants us to view ourselves, it's so easy for these manipulative people to come in and literally say the same lines to everybody. And the women are just so grateful that he's even talking to them, that they ignore the red flag, that they see them. That is so spot on, Valentina. It's so true. It's so true. It's not like this inherent weakness, which some reviews have called my women weak, but I'm like, I think they're just real. It's society internalizing certain things. Kitty, the main character, she's worried that her beauty is faded. And so whenever they have their interaction, like that's just fuel for her and she can't get enough of it. It's almost a drug. It's so interesting because we see your villain give a young boy the advice that all he has to do is ignore a woman as if she doesn't even exist. And then when he said that, I'm like, oh, that's what he's doing to Kitty. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. While we're on the topic of red flags, I learned on TikTok recently that if a man says everyone he's dated is crazy, then there's something wrong with him. And your villain does in fact say everyone is crazy but him. Ooh, I love it. See, I'm like a TikTok influencer and I didn't even know it. Yes, you are. I'm a middle-aged TikTok star (laughs) with two followers. (laughs) Oh, there are TikTok stars who are in their 70s. Have you seen Coastal Grandma? 
No, but I saw something on Twitter about that. At that minute, I didn't have time to investigate, but it stuck with me. I was like, what is Coastal Grandma? I still need to look that up. I need to read about that. That sounds awesome. Can we talk about Kitty and Chloe? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that was my favorite dynamic. I actually felt like the tension between the two of them was in some ways more intense than the tension between any of your two other character pairings, because they're in some ways so similar, and it drives the other crazy. (laughs) And I believe you did not mention having a teenage daughter, but it feels so incredibly lifelike. Yeah, I don't. My son is 10 and I don't have that dynamic in my own life. I wanted to explore too, like women in perimenopause, late 30s, late 40s stage of life, because it is like a second puberty. And you've got Chloe going through puberty and then Kitty going through her second puberty. And they're like hormonally butting heads And I think perimenopause is even like crazier, just speaking from experience, because it's just a wild roller coaster to be on. I'm glad I don't have a teenage daughter right now. (laughs) So it was really a lot of fun to write their whole messy dynamic and to see who could cut each other down more. Was it strange to set all of these crazy things in the woods where you grew up? Yeah, it is. I just finished my fourth novel and I'm in edits on that one right now. And it's also set in the woods in East Texas. And it's like, how in the world did I write four books with that as my background? But obviously, like, I can't get away from it. But my next one is going to be away from it. But it was really creepier with my first one, Big Woods, because it was based on the satanic panic in the 80s that took place in that area. And That set of woods is definitely creepy. And I drove through there for research and I like scared myself. So this is pretty creepy up there, honestly. It's also like a very rich, lush, spooky place to write about. I'm going to challenge myself to get out of the woods for the next one. What tips do you have for writing in alternating past and present? Wow, that's a great question. I think the most important thing is just the consistency. So I really like that as a device, though, for different reasons, either to create suspense or just give a fresh perspective, like a dual timeline. And I don't know if I have any specific tips other than for me, it's liberating. Like it for the suspense element and thrillers. And then in other novels where I've read it, I guess it always comes down to voice and trying to, if it is two different eras, making sure you're in the right error with your voice and everything. I'm only saying this because my latest one I'm editing right now does jump back like 20 years for part of one of the character stories. That makes a lot of sense. Like how you have to make it so that even if the character's name isn't on a chapter, you need to be able to know who it is just from the voice. And that's one of the tricks of multiple point of view. So multiple timelines, I never thought of it, but you have to do the same thing. And if you hate this question, that's totally fair. But there are a lot of things about your villain that are standard issue guy that we all love to hate, but turned up so many notches that he's so much worse. Did you see him that way too? Yes, I think that's really high praise because you really want to hate your villain so much. And I do really hate him. And I tried to give him unique characteristics like his love of books and his love of art that would, you know, maybe be more appealing to Jen and Cynthia. 
I don't think Kitty really cares about any of that cultural stuff like the other two. <laughs> she just cares about how hot he is. I purposefully tried to make him distinct his own person, but he is very much familiar in that he's like just any other manipulative jerk out there. It is interesting that every manipulative person feels unique at first because it feels so creative and so different from our planet. But then we see so many commonalities. It's like on planet sociopath, they all get the same training. So what general tips do you have for writers? My top tips are just don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. If this is something that you're called to do, you're called to do it for a reason and you have to honor that. And it's rough and it's tough, but you have to stick with it. The other thing is maybe don't go out to eat as much and save your money for rent because you're going to need it <laughs> because it's a long game and it, it can feel like you're never going to make any money. I think what I said before is you can write a novel in a year if you do so in stolen moments of time. You don't have to have this perfect day with bottomless hours without distractions to write. For me, sometimes that can be disastrous. Also, don't be precious about where you write. Definitely try to have a space. I write in the corner of my bedroom, but sometimes I write when I'm at a park with my son and he's on the swing set and my husband's pushing him. If I have even three lines come to me, I'll take out my iPhone and type them up in notes and I'll email them to myself. And I work out a lot of stuff that way. I could be on a walk or even at the grocery store, something will come to me and I make sure to type it up and send it on. If you touch your project each day, even if it's for one minute, then even if you can't work on it that day or write, if you're working an eight hour a day job or 10 hour and you're exhausted, like if you can, before you go to sleep, just get it in your subconscious. Then when you do have longer to work on it, it won't be as painful. It won't be like hitting the gym after being gone away for a year. Like for me, if I take five days off and I try to get back to something, it is so hard to get back into it. And it takes me almost a full day to get over whatever drama in my head is about it or resistance. So I really do try to just keep it in my brain, even if I can't sit at the computer and write. And one of my mentors, the novelist Luis Alberto Urea, he said, walking is writing. And sometimes you're not going to be able to get to the page. That's just life. Like a lot of different things are writing other than sitting down and actual writing. And sometimes those things are just as important as what you're going to put on the page, whether it's listening to a podcast like this for inspiration or going to have coffee with the writer. That's just as important as sitting down and putting words on paper sometimes. And sometimes you need to just go do something you like to do. Sometimes you need to get in the car and go to Target and buy a t-shirt. <laughs> and you need to feel good because I think the last two years have shown us that life can be incredibly hard and brutal and demoralizing. So any moments of joy, have that chocolate bar, soak in the tub, try to keep your mental health in good shape. That's going to help you when you finally get to the page and sit down. I love that. And I think that's so important. May, we would love to give out a copy of your book. Can you give out a code word and the first person to email it to us will send them a copy? Okay, darlings. Okay, so the first person to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with darlings in the subject line will get a copy of this incredibly fun, perfect first summer, total page turner of a book. May, thank you so much for joining us. This was lovely. Thank you guys so much for having me. I had such a blast and I hope to come back next year. For your next book. Yes, please do. <laughs> we are so glad that you joined us. 
And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.